In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. As you may know, last week I received a note from disgraced former bookstore proprietor, Joanna. Dear David, I understand that I'm not your favorite person, but I need your help. I'm being pursued. The hourglass has fallen upon me. The goat is in the pasture screaming beneath a thousand stars. The campgrounds are being salted. The tent is being pitched. Five or six impaled on sticks. March on, march on. Unlucky plus one. You understand. Now, I've been trying to decipher it, and I think I've worked out that some of it, at least, points to the announcement I have to share with you today. I'm extremely proud to announce that the No Sleep Podcast has teamed up with author Bonnie Quinn to adapt her How to Survive Camping series to audio. The result is an incredible, terrifying 10-part audio drama called Goat Valley Campgrounds. When can you hear it? Well, next week, of course. Season 17, episode 14 will include the release of the first episode of Goat Valley Campgrounds with the following nine episodes releasing each week, attached to the end of the show. Season Pass 17 holders will receive a separate file for Goat Valley Campgrounds in their feed. Goat Valley Campgrounds follows Kate, a young woman who has taken over managing the camp from her parents. She must deal with the unusual hassles of misbehaving campers and keeping the place running, But on top of all that is the inconvenient fact that the campgrounds are home to several sinister supernatural entities who make Goat Valley Campgrounds a place which requires quite a few rules in order for campers and staff to survive. We're tremendously excited for you to begin listening next week, and ourselves and Bonnie hope you have, well, a horrifying camping trip. And speaking of horrifying trips... It's time for this week's horror to commence. In our first tale, we meet a group of young scamps up to that typical spot of youthful trouble that we all got involved in. That's right, summoning a demon. But in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, 
we discover that the depictions we see in movies have had something lost in translation. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Sarah Thomas, Graham Rowett, Mary Murphy, David Alt, and Ellie Hirschman. So don't worry if you don't understand at first. We'll make things clear for you with the help of the Unholy Interpreter. The altar was set, the candles were lit, and the runes were scrawled in their proper spaces in the goat's blood pentagram. Lisa giggled as she wrapped her arms around Tyler's left <laughs> bicep, squeezing it firmly. Do you really think it's going to work? Tyler's sister Evelyn sat cross-legged on the other side of the pentagram, staring at the lovers with thinly veiled disgust. She mumbled something to herself, and when asked to speak up, regained her pleasant facade. The smile was insincere. Any person with a shred of intelligence could tell, but not Lisa. Not sweet, pure, gullible Lisa. Of course it's going to work. I followed the instructions word for word. Tyler grinned wryly. What are you two gonna wish for? Eternal youth. Evelyn snorted at this. <laughs> Power. Her eyes traced the lines of the pentagram one more time, to make sure she hadn't made a mistake. You? Tyler kept a hand to his chin pensively, as though trying to come up with an answer. He wasn't fooling Evelyn. She knew he'd picked his prize months ago, and this was all just part of their act. Money. Lots and lots of money. He winked to Lisa. So I can spoil my girl here. Lisa blushed and leaned her head against his shoulder. Aww, you're the best. Evelyn finished her quality assurance check and looked at the time. Is everybody ready? The witching hour is about to start. Tyler nodded. Let's get this show on the road. This is so exciting. Evelyn looked down to the ancient leather-bound book in her lap. She turned the page to the ritual incantation. It had been written in Latin and she'd spent days researching and learning the proper pronunciation of each and every word to guarantee success. She held out her hands on either side of her, waiting for the two to take them. One by one, they chained their hands together, and she began to chant, Vini inquit antiquis unum. The candles at the far back of the warehouse began to flicker from an unseen breeze, Axipe sacrificium. The bowing of the flames drew nearer, like a wave in the ocean. Dona nobis vota. The flames within the pentagram grew larger and hotter. She repeated the chant over and over again. And with every cycle, the flames within the pentagram grew stronger. She knew she'd done it once the flames turned blue. Now! The three broke their grip, stood up, and threw their arms into the air. Dona nobis vota! The fires were now so big and so bright, they made the still wet blood forming the pentagram appear to glow a bluish hue. 
The ground began to rumble as a shrill shriek cut through the air. No, it wasn't an optical illusion. The pentagram really was glowing. Months of preparation were paying off. Evelyn's heart raced as she watched the ground within the circle of bright lines seem to disappear into an endless abyss of darkness. Within the pure black chasm, she spotted a coiled shape begin to move, begin to climb. Lisa let out a terrified whimper. What is that? Don't break formation! All Evelyn's efforts would have been in vain if Lisa ran. She had to stay, no matter what. It's okay. This is all part of the plan. The shape in the darkness drew nearer. Its bright blue slitted eyes opening as it approached the surface. Its head rammed into the pentagram from beneath and crashed through the ground with ease. The snake-like creature uncoiled and stretched forcing the teens to slowly back away to give it more room. Good thing they'd changed locations at the 11th hour, thought Evelyn. Had they performed the ritual in their basement as originally planned, it would have torn the roof off. The creature was magnificent. A tall, powerful, monstrous serpent with light blue and gray scales and clusters of matted blonde hair hanging from its head. The circumference of its body was easily that of a manhole, and its head was as large as a car. A tarry substance that smelled faintly of sulfur drizzled from and clung to it, like delicious glaze on a donut. It was everything Evelyn could have hoped for. She checked on the pentagram. The main circle remained on the floor, but the crisscrossing lines stretched up and clung to the creature in like chains. Good. They were a failsafe to keep the demon from entering the real world. Evelyn became briefly aware of an obnoxious sound previously drowned out by the magnificence of the monster. Lisa, sweet, innocent, stupid Lisa, was screaming her poor little head off. Come down! What is that? Literally what we said we were going to summon? The serpent reared back and opened its maw wide, eyes locked on Lisa. Its voice sounded like an echo, with the source being deep within the pentagram. Evelyn pushed Lisa aside. We've summoned you here to grant our wishes in exchange for a humble sacrifice. The snake hissed. Evelyn spread her arms wide. Grant us the powers we seek, O exalted one. The snake looked at Tyler. Please? Its bright blue eyes traveled from one to the other. (laughs) Evelyn looked to Tyler, then back to the monster. She cleared her throat and spoke louder. Grant us the powers we seek! Is this your first demon summoning ritual? The voice came from behind them. It was deep, soft, and undeniably attractive. The three turned and found a man wearing a carnival ringmaster's outfit, minus the top hat. 
sprawled out lazily on the bottom step, leading to a graded storage area along the southern wall. He had dark brown hair combed immaculately to the side, an unshaved face, and black... Was it face paint? Forming circles around his eyes and dripping down his cheeks. He was handsome, with a strong jawline and pronounced chin. And his smile was proportionately wide, with a hint of devious glee hiding in its corners. There was a black quartz-shaped earring dangling from his left ear, the purpose of which was likely not purely aesthetic. He lifted a white-gloved hand. Guten Tag. Uh, you're first, I take it? Evelyn looked at Tyler in confusion. He seemed as lost as she was. Uh, yeah? Why? The circus stranger shifted into a seated position. You did a really good job. He paused and looked around the room. Maybe you went a bit overboard with the candles, bit of a fire hazard, but otherwise a damn fine job. He pushed himself to his feet, brought a hand to his forehead, and peered at the serpent. Goodness gracious, is that a Glyconian snake demon? Don't see many of those around anymore. Frazzled, Tyler stomped closer to the stranger. Who the hell are you? The man laughed and held his hands out defensively. (laughs) Oh, sorry, how rude of me. I'm your translator. Tyler's eyebrows came together. Translator? He smiled. Demon translator, to be precise. Evelyn thumbed through the ritual book. There was no mention of a translator. I... She trailed off, squinting. She'd done everything that was asked, right down to the tiniest detail. How did this happen? I don't understand. We were only supposed to summon him. She pointed to the serpent. Tell me. The stranger examined his right hand as though checking his nails. Do any of you speak Glyconian? No. No. Lisa's eyes were locked on the snake. Her mouth sealed shut in shock. Clearly she hadn't expected any of this to work. It was just supposed to be a little game to pass the time. Like playing Ouija. Innocent and safe. The stranger bowed his head. Hmm. Well, that's why I'm here. Seems good old Glyco here requested my services as an interpreter. He paused, and as though reading their minds, added, Don't worry, I don't require payment directly from you. I get a cut of the profit, that's how it works. Think of me like a mortgage broker. He walked over to the beast, stood directly under it, and wiggled his arms. Bonjour, Black liquid oozed out of the monster's maw, falling on the stranger's head. It made a sizzling sound as it ate away a layer of hair and flesh. The wound immediately closed in on itself and healed. The man took a casual step aside to avoid another dollop. The translator spun on his heels. He asks what you summoned him for. Things were not going according to plan, but Evelyn tried to regain her level-headedness. Oh, uh, 
She pointed to Lisa. She wants eternal youth. I want unlimited power, and Tyler here wants riches. <laughs> Quaint. Bellissimo. Let me tell our friend. He tilted his head back to look up at the serpent, who was waiting patiently. Tuscan Tuscerna Hasantaba. The serpent's eyes narrowed. He says he needs a virgin in exchange. Evelyn smirked. Yes, I'm aware. She nudged Tyler, who stumbled over to Lisa. He grabbed her from behind and held her tightly. She broke out of her stupor and looked at him with a mix of shock and outrage. Uh, Tyler, what are you- Sorry, did you really think I'd be interested in a basic bitch like you? You've no idea how excruciating it's been to sit through two whole months of dates, listening to you drone on and on about your lattes and your adventures with your bestest friends and Bible camp. Ugh. Lisa struggled to break free, but Tyler was too strong. What are you talking about? You love my stories. <laughs> oh, trust me, honey. He doesn't. <clears throat> Do you three need a bit of time, or...? Evelyn shook her head. No, no. She's our virgin sacrifice. She winked at Lisa. You said you wanted eternal youth, didn't you? Look at it this way. You're getting what you wanted. Now you'll never grow old. Lisa whipped her head back and glared at Tyler. Did you seriously date me just so you could sacrifice me to a freaking snake god? Tyler looked the slightest bit guilty. Kinda, yeah. What about all those times I had to listen to you whine about your stupid sister? And how she's weirdly controlling of you and always gives you bedroom eyes? Evelyn looked up. What? Tyler swallowed nervously. Uh, that was just to uh, gain your trust, yeah. How could you do that to me? I'm not even a virgin. Evelyn's face paled. Wait, you aren't? No. But, but you're a Christian. Lisa wiggled harder. That doesn't mean I've never fucked. Tyler. God damn, Tyler. He couldn't be trusted to keep it in his pants for two months? Just two months? Evelyn glared at him with rage in her eyes. Tyler, you didn't! Well, this is awkward. Tyler raised his arms defensively, but in doing so, released Lisa, who ran to the door only to find it locked. We have it, I swear! You said she wasn't putting out! She didn't! I swear I didn't defile- <laughs> The translator scratched his chin. Oh my. It seems you've upset our friend here. He says the sacrifice must be made, otherwise he'll eat all three of you. I would really recommend you hurry up and pick someone else to sacrifice. Lisa was screaming wildly, pulling and turning the door handle in desperation. Tyler walked over to Evelyn and then pushed her towards the snake. Take her! Evelyn stumbled to a stop inches from the serpent's body. Tyler! You- 
asshole! The serpent lowered its head to appraise the sacrifice. It flared its nostrils, taking a deep inhale that pulled her clothes and hair towards it. It let out a shriek and then whipped its head towards Tyler. You know, I speak every language, every single one, even body language. The translator motioned vaguely towards the snake. I'd say he's quite displeased at the moment. The serpent bore its fangs. Tyler quivered in fear. I don't understand. Why won't he take my sister? Because I'm not a virgin, you idiot! What? Since when? Since we decided we were going to summon a virgin-eating snake demon, and I thought, hmm, contingency plan. Maybe I want to avoid getting mistaken as the sacrifice. Why didn't you tell me? Didn't see the point. Didn't think you'd try to feed me to it. Yeah, yeah, I believe he is. Sorry, I mean, um, Tuscana, Tanahasha. We're all gonna die! Tyler looked at his sister in desperation. His eyes were wide, bulging, and filled with horror. You don't understand, Evelyn! I'm. The Glyconian snake demon stuck quickly and accurately closing its maw on Tyler's head. Its sulfuric saliva dissolved the muscles and ligaments, allowing it to sever the head from the body. It pulled back and swallowed, leaving the body to fall to the ground and convulse, shooting blood all over the room. If I may, I believe your brother's final words were going to be a virgin. Lisa had abandoned her escape attempt, She slid down the wall and stared in shock at the still-writhing body of her ex-boyfriend. Evelyn's jaw dropped. Her brother. Her dearest, albeit asshole brother, gone in an instant. He didn't deserve this. He didn't deserve to be reduced to a quivering mass of gore, even if he'd tried to do the same to her. Your wishes have been granted. His demonship shall return to the underworld until such a time as he is called again. The ground shook as the snake slowly retracted into the summoning circle. Just as he was about to disappear within, he licked Tyler's neck for one last taste and then retreated the rest of the way. The pentagram went flat and dull and the candles blew out all at once. The warehouse was pitch black, but all had not gone quiet. Lisa was whimpering somewhere in the dark, and a strange sloshing and munching sound was coming from near Evelyn. She pawed through her pockets in search of her phone. Light, I need to see you. As she found her phone and flicked it on, she found herself regretting it. The translator was on all fours, Hands in Tyler's chest, entrails hanging from his mouth. The lower half of his face was covered in blood, with touches of it all the way on his chin, like a kid messily eating a rack of ribs. He smiled with his eyes and gave her a light little nod. Hmm, just taking my cut.
When you're young and you don't get along with your parents, it can suck. That's where having grandparents can come in. They're like parents, but wiser, chiller, and old enough to have circled through uncool and back to cool again. But in this tale, shared with us by author Samantha Dragon, even the best of times with elders can be tainted by darkness. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Aaron Lillis, and Danielle McRae. So let's hang out with Meemaw and Pop Pop. Almost everything is great there. Almost everything apart from the other thing. I loved my grandparents' house, but I hated their basement. I had a troubled relationship with my parents, for reasons that honestly felt more my fault than theirs. So they decided I'd spend every weekend at my Mima and Pop Pop's house. It gave my parents and I a break from each other. Other kids may have taken the weekly separation from their parents as an abandonment, but I didn't mind in the least. I worshipped my Mima and Pop Pop, and in turn, they let me get away with murder. I would spend every moment with them eating junk food and goofing around. On Fridays, we'd have breakfast for dinner. On Saturdays, we'd do a movie night. And on Sundays, we'd play made-up games until my parents came to get me. They let me watch cartoons, they never asked me to do chores, and they let me sleep in their room every night, even though my parents had started to say I was too old. Their house was paradise. I considered asking my parents to let me live there full time, but the basement changed my mind. I hated the basement. It smelled like old clothes, that musty, dusty, stale smell that I have always associated with a basement. The kind of smell that accumulates in the deepest, dampest part of the house because it has nowhere else to go. Their basement was also unreasonably dark. The only sunlight came from two small glass windows, no bigger than a shoebox each. They faced the back of the house, by the driveway. The glass itself had yellowed with age and was layered in dust. One of the windows was covered by a big bush that Mima had planted years before, so even during the middle of the day, barely any natural light filtered in. On top of that, the basement only had one light fixture, a bare bulb that I could turn on by pulling a silver chain. The chain was fairly short, and I had to stand on my tippy toes to reach up for it. It dangled from the ceiling at the bottom of the stairs and was surrounded by cobwebs. I hated reaching up into the spider webs more than almost anything. I hated the basement, the cobwebs, the smell, and the other thing. So much that the only time I ever really fought with Mima or Pop Pop was when they needed me to go down those stairs. There was only one reason to go down there at all. A massive chest freezer where Mima kept her meat. They'd buy half a cow, pig, or deer from the farmer next door and keep all the meat in the downstairs freezer. My little brain thought the image of half a cow locked in the freezer was plenty creepy on its own, let alone mixed with the moldy old basement. Then, there was the other thing that was down there. On the last day I ever visited my grandparents, we had a fight about the basement. 
Mima was making some kind of soup. She was chopping vegetables, and the kitchen smelled of sautéed garlic and onions. Zerbear, go down to the chest freezer and get me some mutton. It'll be in a white plastic package with red writing. I planted my little eight-year-old feet and started to tear up in preparation for a fight. But me, Ma... I was thinking of making chocolate chip cookies for dessert tonight. And maybe I'll let you eat the leftover dough if you're a good little princess. But I don't... Uh, uh, good little princesses, remember that Mima's have bad knees and old backs. They don't argue with their Mima's. She had me there. She knew that chocolate was a prime motivator and cookie dough was my favorite. Fine. I pouted for a dramatic effect so that she'd understand how this was such a trial for me. I continued to flounce dramatically across the kitchen to the basement door, but stopped once I was directly in front of it. I hesitated, then turned around to look over my shoulder at my Mima. That glance is my last pleasant image of her. I remember her gray hair was tied up in a messy bun. Stray hairs had tickled at her face and fallen in front of her sharp green eyes. She leaned over the stove. She wore a loose t-shirt and jeans. The kitchen smelled of warm garlic and onions. The sight of her looking safe and warm gave me the last bit of courage I needed. I opened the basement door and looked down into the dismal dark. The stairs were old, wooden, and creepy. I could just make out the bottom step. The other thing was nowhere in sight. I took a deep breath and began to sneak down the stairs. I kept my hands at my sides, careful not to touch the wooden railing. My kid brain and too many movies told me if I touched the railing that something, maybe the other thing, would grab my hand. I stared at the silver string of the pull chain as it got closer. By the time I could reach the pull chain, it was nearly pitch black. I swallowed reached up on my tippy toes into the sticky, itchy cobwebs, and yanked the chain down. Relief flooded through me as the light came on with a pleasant click. I glanced around and saw cobwebs, concrete, and nothing else. I stepped off the bottom step and into the basement proper. The freezer was up against the wall on the left-hand side, a little behind the stairs. I spun around slowly, peering into the shadows of the basement, looking at the chair in the corner that the other thing sat on sometimes, at the opposite corner, where it laid down during other times, the washer and dryer. It wasn't there. Confused, I turned to get behind the stairs to where the freezer was. As I came around the steps, I froze mid-step. The other thing was there. It was standing in front of the freezer. I had always tried not to look at it. Not directly, but in that moment of shock, I couldn't help it. It was in the glow of the light bulb. A black void in the shape of a human. The shape of a human a giant had grabbed with both hands and twisted. The right arm was bent backward at the elbow. Its back was turned slightly to the left. Its head was constantly at a questioning angle tilted to the side as if it was trying to understand something. 
It had no face. I don't know how much time passed before I managed to force my eyes away. I stared down at my feet. My heart was slamming into my sternum, beating so fast I could hear it in my ears and feel it in my fingers. I had to go past it to get the meat for Mima's stew. I couldn't go upstairs without that meat. I had a good thing going with my grandparents, and I didn't want to have to go home to my parents early. I didn't want to lose out on my weekends away from the fights I had with my parents. I was stuck. I had seen it before, out of the corner of my eye, of course. I always pretended it wasn't there, like my mom and the doctors told me to. I was supposed to ignore all of my imaginary friends, which was what my parents and I always fought about. I had walked past the thing once or twice before, as it laid in the corner of the basement or sat on the broken dining room chair. I would always avoid looking at it and stare at my feet instead, though even when I wasn't looking at it, I could still feel that it was there. I would try to convince myself it was just a weird shadow cast by the bare light bulb. I stood still, trying to figure out what to do, but it didn't move. So I decided to act like those other times, even though it was closer. Much closer. I balled my hands into fists and took a shaky step toward the freezer, not looking up from my feet. Nothing happened. I took a deep breath, realizing that I hadn't been breathing so that I could hear better. I moved again, watching the other thing without looking directly at it. It wasn't moving. I was nearly a foot and a half away before I realized I was wrong, and it was moving. It was breathing. I was within arm's reach, though, and I was too terrified to turn around and run. I forced myself forward, step after step, until I was right next to it. I wasn't sure if it was my imagination or if it was breathing faster. I think it was. I think it was gasping for air. I wanted to run away. My eyes were tearing up. I opened the freezer. The edge reached up to my chest and, of course, the mutton was in the back. I would need to get on my tiptoes and reach to get the... It moved. It had moved so fast I hadn't noticed until it was leaning its face toward my ear. It was making a noise. A kind of weird hissing noise. It was breathing and hissing and I could feel its cold breath on my neck. I shuddered, unable to help myself. It leaned in closer, its breath on my ear now. It made the strange noises again, and in my terror, I thought I could make out, just under the hissing, rasping sound of air, words, a sentence. Can you see me? I let out a gasp, unable to stop the sound. The other thing reacted to the noise. It shifted, moving so it was behind me so I couldn't get away. You see me. Look at me. I shook my head. Some part of my brain noted that the freezer was still open, that my hands were cold. Look at me! Its voice was quiet, but somehow it yelled. 
sounded like bones cracking, like air hissing. Each word was filled with venomous anger and pain. I stared at my hand, still outstretched toward the meat in the freezer. My face was wet. I was shaking. I didn't look up. You killed me. It took its head away from my ear. I thought I felt the cold breath on my neck as it moved away. I felt a moment of relief. Then it leaned its whole body away from me and grabbed me with its bent backwards arm. I screamed. I wasn't in the basement anymore. I was standing by a road. It was pouring down rain in what felt like a summer storm. I felt hot. It was hard to see out. I felt soaked, as though I'd been out there for hours. My thumb was out, and I had a phone in my other hand. I didn't know why, but I felt lost. Then I felt relief. There was a car coming. I waved my phone around, trying to flag the car down. It kept coming. The car swerved toward me. I felt fear, then the impact of the car, then so much pain. I flew through the air, over the hood. I could feel my arm, my neck, my back, but not my legs. I felt like I was on fire. I slammed into the pavement. The impact knocked me senseless. Then I saw the car stop. A woman got out of the driver's side door, yelling something I couldn't understand. A man got out of the passenger side. He said something too, but I couldn't quite hear it either. The sound of the rain falling had grown so loud, like a white noise machine inside my brain. The red rear lights illuminated the wet concrete. I could hear myself whimpering. The driver and the passenger looked like they were arguing. They got closer to me. In the red glow, I recognized the woman as she stood over me. Her hair was less gray, and it hung loose around her face, but I knew it was my Mima. I tried to speak. She reached down and touched my forehead. Please, help. I said with a wheeze and a rasp. I could feel something wrong inside of me something important. Mima looked up at the man and said something. He came closer and I saw that it was Pop-Pop. He moved toward me. He looked over and said something, shook his head. I couldn't hear them, but I knew they had to be helping me. Pop-Pop moved around behind me, picked me up. His hands weren't gentle like when he picked me up at home or when he put me in bed. They were rough, jerky. It hurt. He dragged me toward the car. Mima went back to the car and, to my disbelief, opened the trunk. I screamed. Pop-Pop lifted me up and threw me inside. The trunk closed. I hurt so much and it was so dark. I passed out and then woke up again in the trunk. I struggled to breathe then passed out again. This cycle repeated off and on for what felt like forever. We had to be going to the hospital, right? 
The car came to a stop and decelerated in a way that felt oddly familiar. The trunk opened and I saw we were at my grandparents' house. Mima and Pop-Pop were arguing again. Mima took my legs and Pop-Pop took my arms. They lifted me up into the house, through the kitchen, and down into the basement. I was crying. I realized that the basement was different. The floor wasn't cement, but dirt. I didn't remember the floor being dirt. They put me down and left. Mima reappeared and urgently scrubbed at the red trail I had left on the steps. Some part of my brain noted that I was dying. Another part noted that I had made a mess. Pop-Pop came down the stairs after her and started digging in the corner of the room. I whimpered again, but I don't think either of them heard. They put me in the hole he had dug. Did they know I was still alive? Dirt piled on top of me, on top of us. The other was here with me. I was her and she was me. We were in there together, unable to move or scream. We breathed in dirt. It filled our lungs. We suffocated. I was gasping for air as the other's hand released me. I heard my Mima's voice upstairs. Princess? Princess? Did you fall into the freezer? The other moved away from me. I ran. I ran up the stairs that had been covered in blood. Mima moved toward me to comfort me, and I moved away from her. Don't touch me! I ran to the bathroom and locked myself in. The rest is history. My parents came to get me, and I didn't visit Mima and Pop-Pop ever again. My mental issues and disturbances at school and home got worse, of course. Dying will really mess a kid up, as will a glimpse at a terrible afterlife. I told the school what happened at my grandparents, and I was recommended for more counseling. That led to more therapy, which led to more diagnoses. I never had anyone believe me. Pop-Pop passed two years ago, and Mima passed eight months ago. When the place had to be cleaned out, I refused at first. But my parents are getting old, and they offered to pay me to do it. So, I did. I started from the top of the house and worked down. I donated the furniture and threw most of everything out. I saved a few keepsakes for my mom, but nothing for myself. I fixed up some of the little things that go wrong with a house over the years of being lived in. Then, I went down in the basement. It was still there, sitting on a broken dining room chair, dead and alone. I didn't stay in the basement long, and I never actually cleaned the basement out. I did leave a note for the new homeowners, though. I asked them to always leave a chair down there, in memory of my grandparents.
Learning is fun. Read a book, especially if you need to find a way to resurrect a departed loved one. Books will surely hold the answer. But in this tale, shared with us by author C.M. Scandreth, we're reminded that there's a reason some knowledge is hard to acquire. Performing this tale are Penny Scott Andrews and Jake Benson. So turn over a new leaf and settle down with a good book. Hopefully it will contain the information you seek. It should, if you've managed to check it out from The Black Library. There are two things in this world that can surmount any obstacle ever created. The first of these is love. Our capacity to love creates in us a drive and purpose that goes beyond survival. We do insane and superhuman things in the name of love, things that would not be possible under any other circumstances. Tiny women lift wrecked cars off their injured husbands. Men carry their wives through ten miles of snow to get them to hospital. Parents sacrifice their lives for their children. Such is the power of love. But there is another force that is just as powerful as love. Human intelligence. We will never know who first discovered how to make fire, but that act sparked a revolution. It expanded our minds, giving us the power to shape the world around us. What seemed impossible became possible. Jungles could be turned into fertile farmlands. Mountains could be ground down into blocks of stone to build grand towers and high walls. With the power of our intelligence, we conquered diseases, tamed nature, walked on the moon, and sent our likeness on a golden disk to the edge of our solar system and beyond. And when love and intelligence collide. Truly impossible things can happen. Having an eidetic memory has been a boon for most of my life. The ability to store and recall anything is the dream of every school child, because with that gift, exams become nothing to fear, largely a mindless exercise in easy recall. It was so simple for me when I hit the age where standardized testing began. For the other children, the concept of 100% seemed some sort of mythic uncertainty, a shibboleth signifying unattainable success. For me, it was a constant, a variable as certain as my memory. They pushed me ahead in school until it became clear that I had both a perfect memory and a stupendously high IQ. Then, with very little discussion and even less warning, I was shipped off to university at the tender age of 14, where older, wiser students gawped at the child in their midst, who still wore pigtails and rainbow-bright sneakers. I may have been embarrassed by my youth and lack of worldliness, but they were more embarrassed by being academically trounced by someone who still had braces on her teeth and sparkles on her backpack. Eventually, I finished my first degree, then a second, then my third. By the time I was 25, I had a postdoctoral fellowship, was lecturing classes under tenure, and had received a special research grant. But better than all the academic success in the world, I was in love. 
It would do a disservice to my lover to lavish praises on her character and beauty. When you are truly, mindlessly besotted with someone, a heady haze of your own bias surrounds them, buffing away every floor until they shine like the most precious stone in existence. Thoughts of her warm, soft skin consumed my mind during the day, and I longed for the nights to be with her, inhaling the dusky natural perfumes of her body and listening to her chatter about her day at work. Others may have disagreed, but to me, she was the most perfect person in the whole world. I knew that Tess was depressed, and had been since before we met. In my arrogance, I thought I could cure her, that I could achieve what generations of psychologists and peddlers of pharmaceuticals could not. On the bad night, she would just sob until she shook with fatigue. She would lie awake for hours, her traitor mind tormenting her with the kinds of what-if scenarios a normal brain can so easily dismiss. I would hold her and tell her it would all be okay. I'd talk about our bright future, and how, eventually, we would just live in the countryside, where she could pull weeds and prune rose bushes, activities which soothed her bruised synapses and helped banish the dark thoughts. When the call eventually came, I knew what had happened as soon as the police officer introduced himself on the phone. Tess was gone. I tried to process her death as the textbooks describe. Denial, anger bargaining, depression, acceptance. I seemed to flip fluidly between the first and the second stages, angry at myself for not doing enough to stop her suicide, unable to believe that this was the end of her, that she was gone forever. Science could not assuage my grief. Regardless of which studies I read, no matter how promising a piece of research seemed at first, and I read everything I could find. I sought for any kind of answer to the question of Tess's death, any way of making myself okay with her abrupt exit from this existence. Every rational, logical, reasonable source of information told me that she was gone, that while there might be cellular activity on a basic level in the brain for some 10 minutes after death, that did not mean any part of Tess could have survived her suicide. Hopeless, broken, and lost in self-isolation. I started looking elsewhere. Religion offered me hope in the form of every flavor of afterlife, but I'd abandoned religion long ago. After all, Tess and I were lesbians. So, if the Christian gospels were true, she now languished in a lake of fire, being eternally tormented for the sin of homosexuality. Still, reading through the various beliefs of other cultures throughout the world, bought me a sort of temporary peace. And so I persisted, gathering esoteric tomes from different universities, using my influence as a child prodigy to purloin particular pages from antique anthologies. I began to feel as though I was being led on a sort of academic scavenger hunt, because every time I found a new piece of information, it appeared to provide clues about where to find another. And so... With the desperate need to fill the empty hole left in my life where Tess had been, I pursued those tenuous connections until I reached the end. The monastery was quiet, as I'd always imagined such a mountaintop retreat would be. 
But these monks wore robes of black velvet. The sheen of the rich fabric at odds with the tales about monkish austerity. And the fingers of the monk who led me inside the grey stone walls to meet the librarian were heavy with gold. Clearly, this was no ordinary religious order. The librarian greeted me jovially and asked if I'd like coffee. It was genuine Kopi Luwak, he explained, one of the most rare and expensive types of coffee in the world. When I declined, he simply smiled, busying himself with preparing his brew in the small kitchen to the side of his office. We never thought we'd have a student come to us, not within our lifetime. So you do us a great honour. Why is that so unusual? He pointed a manicured nail at my manila folder of scanned and copied pages. It takes a rare level of genius to decipher the map to this monastery, the sort that is only born once into any generation, and even then it takes a particular kind of motivation to push such an individual in our direction. The library? I prompted, impatient now. He placed his coffee down carefully, then indicated the brocade chair in front of his expensive-looking desk. I sat down, and he studied me silently for a moment. What do you know? About the library. My research indicates it's a trove of information that survived the burning of Alexandria. Books, older than the Dead Sea Scrolls, unaltered and perfectly copied, which has survived the trials of time. But you also know it's more than that, don't you? I nodded. There are common themes in the stories I found. Men entering the library and then leaving it after three years. In those stories, they emerge with knowledge that shouldn't have existed in their time. How to create and fold steel thousands of years before smelting was discovered. How to make gunpowder or engines well before even the rudiments of those methods were organically discerned. His brown eyes turned serious. There is a contract, and it is deeply binding. Binding on a level you may not yet comprehend. I figured as much. Otherwise, the rest of the world would already know about this place. Will you sign? I considered for a moment, then nodded. I have nothing else to live for. The stairs wound down into the darkness beneath the monastery cellars, curving out of sight. The librarian left me there, telling me that what I sought was at the bottom. Regarding that shadowed spiral of steps, fear finally thrilled through me. I'd felt quite numb up until that point, perhaps not truly processing that what was happening was real. Was this actually genuine? Was there really a library at the bottom of these stairs? Perhaps these genial, well-appointed, lavish living monks accumulated their obvious wealth by kidnapping idiot academics with too much free time. That seemed far more likely. But if I left now, I knew I would spend the rest of my life lying awake tormented by genuine what-ifs, not just the inflated ghosts that had haunted my test. The darkness closed around me like a blanket as I took another turn down the descending stone stairwell. I kept my hand on the wall. That, and the regular height of the slab stairs, the only things keeping me from stumbling in the lack of light. I shuffled along like that for a long time, Several times I thought about giving up and going back, but I reasoned that perhaps this was another test, much like the ones that had brought me to the monastery. 
The faintly luminous hands of my wristwatch told me that two hours had passed and my ears had popped over an hour before. How deep underground I was, I couldn't fathom, but it was definitely well below sea level. My mouth was dry. I wished I'd accepted that coffee or at least had something to eat or drink before I'd begun my descent. It was cold now, cold enough to make me shiver and curse my lack of a decent jacket or coat. When my teeth started chattering uncontrollably, thoughts of returning to the surface became stronger. The darkness was so oppressive, so cold, but the thought of climbing back up three hours worth of the steep stone stairs made my stomach lurch with fear and exhaustion. Yet I needed to decide, and soon. The longer I continued my descent, the longer that journey back up would become. Surely there had to be an end. Eventually, the builders of these stairs must have been forced to stop, unable to tunnel any further into the bedrock of the mountain. And at the very moment I mustered that thought, I found the last step. My foot dropped into empty air, but I was too tired to even reflexively pull it back. I had been in a trance-like rhythm for hours now, hand on the wall, shuffling the next foot down. Off balance, I scrabbled to grip the smooth wall, trying to dig my nails into the stone. To no avail. As I fell into the icy darkness, fear welled up within me. A great ball of gas, colder than the cosmos, expanding up from my bowels and compressing my lungs. The terror erupted from my lips in a scream that was so loud it ripped through my brain and tore my consciousness away. The cell was dim. A ruddy glow emanated from some sort of dull red quartz set into the ceiling, providing little more light than a bulb in a photographic dark room. There was no door, just walls of smooth black stone. The pallet on which I lay appeared hewn from the same stone as the walls. At the foot of the bed were some neatly piled clothes, all deepest black, a robe, gloves, and a pair of slippers. I still wore my own clothes, but it was chilly in the cell, and the dark attire looked soft and warm. Clearly there was a way into the cell, I reasoned, else how did they get me in here? Perhaps one whole wall was the door, the hinges cunningly hidden by the corner of the cell. Welcome warmth engulfed my hands as I pulled on the gloves. The black slippers would not fit over my sensible shoes, so I removed my own footwear first. Lastly, the robe, which proved wonderfully comfortable as I pushed my arms through the thick sleeves and pulled the hood up over my head. As if in response to donning the clothes, the light in the room brightened incrementally, and the outline of a door became visible. It swung open, noiselessly, revealing a red-lit corridor. With no other choices available, I stepped out of the cell and immediately regretted it. The black robe shrank tight around my body, so sudden and constricting I felt instantly unable to breathe. The black collar snapped up over my nose and mouth, and I tore fruitlessly at it in a wave of powerful claustrophobia. I let out an involuntary yelp of panic, but the sound was absorbed completely by the thick black cloth that muffled my face. My breathing was fast, too fast. I was sucking in air in short gasps, and I was becoming lightheaded. I needed to calm myself to use reason, 
my most powerful and faithful weapon to get through this situation. Hunched against the wall, I tried to ignore the oppressive tightness of the black clothes, telling myself that they were not rigid, I could still breathe. The panic abated, and my panting breath slowly returned to normal. Straightening up, my gloved hands spread against the smooth stone to steady myself. I once again had the suspicion that I had just passed another test. As I walked through the black corridor, others emerged from cells apparently identical to my own. Clad in the black robes, only their eyes faintly visible under the shadowed rims of their hoods, they all looked the same. As I joined the dark river of bodies that flowed along the corridor, I realized with an involuntary shiver that we were also all exactly the same height. It was as if the robes, gloves and slippers had erased every shred of our individuality. I tried to talk, of course, to ask questions, but every word I spoke vanished into the black muffler over my face, never reaching the ears of the others around me. The queue of robed figures eventually emptied out into a hall, so large and so dimly lit that I could see neither roof nor walls. As the others stopped and began to spread out in that fathomless space, black desks of stone rose smoothly and noiselessly from the floor. One for each student in the room. I knew this place. I had read this legend. Were it possible to scream, I would have. I wondered how many of the others were screaming under the tight cloth covering their faces. Surely they had read the same tales as I had during their own research and must be coming to the same conclusion. Letters of red fire appeared on the black stone desk before me and I memorized them reflexively. Instantly, they vanished and were replaced by new words describing events recorded in no human history book. If what I had researched was true, then this place, this classroom, was housed in no earthly realm. And if I did not memorize all the words presented to me and do so before all of my peers, then as the last person to leave this room, my soul would be forfeit to Lucifer himself. Sweating and shaking, I forced my eyes to absorb the page of flickering scarlet letters, then another, then another. Nearby, one of the other students must have realized their predicament because they tried to tear off their robes. They twisted and turned, pulling and grabbing at the unyielding cloth in a perversely silent and terrible dervish dance. Eventually, they began to smash their head repeatedly into the sharp edges of the obsidian desk until they collapsed. The other students stared silently, just as I did. As the blooded desk slid slickly back into the floor, hands emerged from the stone around the fallen student. Corpse grey, long-nailed and covered with pale, shaggy fur, they pulled the body into the ground, the only sound I had heard thus far. A whisper of black cloth on stone and the clicking of claws. For now... The rest of us might be safe. Hell had already claimed a soul for today. Every day was the same. We would rise, put on our jet black robes, and the door would open. Then we would all file into the cavernous classroom, where we would frenetically memorize the words of fire, desperately trying not to be the last one to finish. After we returned to our cells, the door would close and the robes would loosen, allowing us to take them off and regain our individuality. 
those same grey hands that had taken the first fallen student would emerge from the wall, clutching dull pewter plates of rich foods and carved goblets of exotic drinks. When I was done eating and drinking, they would emerge once more to take away the plates and cups. I knew the reason for the robes. I'd figured it out on the second day. Our demonic tutor did not want us to know who the other students were. That gave me a valuable clue towards figuring out another part of the puzzle, because the librarian had told me himself that someone like me was only born once every generation. The classroom must exist outside time itself. That was the only way there could be so many students. Initially, I had been confident, being one of the first to finish almost every day. But as the lessons became more complex and I had to truly understand every concept instead of just memorizing text, I began to slip several places. Against whom was I studying? If the classroom was truly outside time, then it could be anyone. The man to my left could be Aristotle, the one on the right, Einstein, or even da Vinci. My former confidence became tainted with fear and it began to affect my concentration. When the frightening day came that the classroom was almost empty when I finished, I knew I had to do something more. Alone in my cell, unrestricted by the cloying wrap of black fabric, I lay on the stone pallet and racked my brains for an answer to my predicament. If I was truly up against the very greatest minds of history, then I didn't stand a chance. I knew I was good. My intelligence was leagues beyond anyone I'd known in life, but that meant I was smart enough to realize that with all of human history stacked against me, the odds were very bad. As I mulled over all my experiences thus far, my mind kept returning to probe one singular fact. The anonymity of the robes was not complete. I had already picked out certain individuals with particular habits. One of them nervously tugged at their hood periodically as they worried the others would see their eyes. Another always ensured they took the desk at the far left-hand corner of the room, circling it once before sitting. And both of them always left the room early, but never first. That was unusual in itself, since the other students I'd marked by their behaviours fluctuated wildly in their placement. These two were clearly so sure of themselves, so monstrously clever, that they could practically choose when they would finish. But that still didn't tell me who they were. The man in the corner, if he was in fact a man, might be Johann Goethe or Nikola Tesla. Or it could be some unknown who never made it into the history books. Even worse, if the classroom was outside of time in every direction, as I suspected, he might be from the distant future, where humanity had perfected itself to a level beyond imagining. This information was critical in some way. I knew it. Our headmaster, Lucifer, could just as easily have made us study alone, in our cells, doing away with the need to interact with the others at all. He must have wanted us to see each other, to be aware of our peers. The obvious reason for this would be to instill fear, to motivate us to study harder. But in a classroom, outside the bounds of time, why would that even matter? There was no one to see my triumphant grin when I realized I had my answer. You couldn't leave the hall until you'd finished the lessons. Oh, you could get up and walk around, 
But if you approached the door without finishing, the grey hands would catch you and drag you into the black stone, your soul forfeit to our headmaster. I waited until the lesson was something I wouldn't struggle with too much. It seemed that none of my remaining peers had a memory quite as perfect as mine, since I was always the first to finish those lessons that were comprised of sheer volume of information. That day, the last page lay in front of me, unread, waiting for me to glance at it and burn the letters into my memory. I kept my eyes purposefully averted. The figure in the corner, whom I'd named Leonardo for the sake of convenience, stood up as the red glow faded from his desk. As he did so, I finished my own work, but waited. He paced through the rows of students, eventually reaching the door, and as he did so, I also stood and made my way out. Along the corridor we walked, me keeping several paces behind him. I knew which room was his because I'd memorized the number of steps. As his door swung open, I took six running strides towards him on my soft, silent slippers, then smashed his head against the obsidian sharp edge of the door. He dropped immediately, dark blood gouting from his hood. His own slippered feet twitched and spasmed, and one arm flapped in a palsied seizure, slapping noiselessly against the stone. As the grey hands emerged to pull him down into the darkness, I knew I'd found my edge. I would never be the last one to leave the classroom. If the others knew what I'd done, they didn't give any indication of it. I switched up my mannerisms and moved desks regularly, so that if any of the others had been observing me as I had them, they couldn't possibly track me. I always watched the corridor behind me as I left the classroom to ensure that nobody did to me what I had done to Leonardo. In the first year, I murdered ten of my peers, the brightest and the best, and therefore my strongest competition. But I monitored myself carefully for any signs of overconfidence. I could never let down my guard, because if I had figured out this deadly loophole, then so too could another student. And indeed, when my mental headcount came up short one morning, I felt a strange thrill. It seemed another murderer had joined me in the devil's classroom. He was careful, very careful. It took me months to unriddle who he was, and during that time, the paranoia gripped me like one of the giant shaggy grey hands. Every walk through the black corridors was riddled with fear. In the end, it turned out his technique was simple. He would simply wait until only he and one other student were left in the cavernous classroom. Then he would kill his unsuspecting peer by bashing his head into the desk. It was so crude and uninspired that I laughed to myself in the dim light of my cell, realizing that his modus operandi was born of desperation rather than true cunning. I had to kill him, of course. He was going about it completely the wrong way. By killing off the worst students, he was only hastening our own demise. He died on the day I crawled deliberately slowly through my work, ensuring we were the last two left. As he came to bludgeon my face into the sharp stone, I struck his knee with my foot, then threw him sideways into the desk. The struggle was brief. It seemed that with the robes constricting us to the exact same size and shape, my greater experience as a killer won out. There was a chance I was not the greatest mind in this classroom, but I suspected I was now the best murderer. The others had noticed the declining numbers, of course they had. None of us were stupid people. Strange, silent alliances had formed, 
where little groups would sit together, wait for each other and leave together. With silent hand gestures, I'd been invited into one such group and I played along. For if I marked myself as an outsider, they might unriddle my dark secret. The lessons were incredible now, imparting insights far beyond the reaches of ordinary science. The origins of the universe were clearly revealed to me, along with the fundamental laws that bind everything together. If Einstein were present, he must have cursed himself for a fool, as the lessons we learned made him seem like a plodding idiot, woefully out of his league. On the day that one group of students stood mid-lesson and attacked another group outright, the uninvolved students just stared, their eyes shocked in the depths of their hoods. I wanted to tear off my mask and scream at them to ask them what the fuck they thought would eventually happen in a competition plotted by Satan himself. The fight was long and brutal, the only weapons being soft-gloved fists, feet and the obsidian furniture. Those not involved just watched knowing that today's quota was more than full. The rest of us could take our time studying. Counting on that, when the others had left, I stayed behind. There was blood pooled and splattered everywhere that was hard to see on the dark floor. Fragments of bone and hair clung to the desks. Here, a severed finger had been missed by the hands of our ghastly cleaners. But amongst it all, I found something wonderful. Something game-changing. Along the edge of one desk, the obsidian had fractured, and a razor-sharp shard lay on the floor, nearly invisible. Picking it up, I pushed it carefully into my sleeve. Now I had what no other student had. A weapon. In game theory, such an advantage instantly marks you out. As soon as you reveal that you have such a thing, others will want to take it off you. An uneasy truce reigned in the classroom now, with no group willing to risk a confrontation, lest the fight lower their numbers. The hand signals became increasingly complex, each group developing a distinct language which the outgroups didn't understand. But with my memory, I could replay the gestures in my mind and teach myself the dialects, giving my group a vital edge. I think my group knew I was the original killer, the one who had started it all. They deferred to me and feared me. In my periphery, I saw one refer to me as the Ripper, spelling out the letters individually in our crude sign language. Betrayal happened regularly now that we would communicate. The game became less about the lessons and more about politics. We still studied, but the learning of forbidden knowledge had taken a distinct backseat to the wheeling and dealing that had become commonplace. After watching one group sacrifice the smartest man they had to ensure their tribe's survival, I knew we had reached a turning point. Soon, there would be anarchy. It started on the walk through the corridor, before we had even divided off into our groups, before we had exchanged the secret handshakes that confirmed our membership at the cliques. Students just started leaping at one another. A man came at me and we struggled, a perfect physical match in our arcane robes. An elbow from another fighter knocked him off balance, and I pressed the advantage, knocking him down and headbutting him in the nose. When the madness slowed, then stopped, the grey hands began to claim the dying and seriously injured. With a nod, one of the survivors pointed toward the classroom. Not knowing what else to do, we slipped and skidded through the pools of blood, the hems of our robes leaving dark trails into the classroom. 
The footprints left by our stopping slippers marked the paths to our sparsely spread seats. There were only five of us left. They jumped me on the way out. I finished first, and the other four all rose together, not a hand signal between them. They knew who I was. Everyone knew who everyone else was by now. We had spent two full years together in this place. The first man went down in a tangle of robes. I had nicknamed him Byron, but unlike his bombastic namesake, he was not a fighter. The other three circled me, glancing at one another, askance, still unsure quite how to handle me now that Byron's limp body was being pulled through the floor. Shakespeare and Curie stood to either side, while Gauss circled, trying to get behind me. With a snarl only heard in my own head, I turned and threw myself upon the figure sidling up to me, the obsidian shard slashing through his collar and deep into his throat. The other two were instantly on top of me, but they hadn't seen the black knife. It licked out vengefully, leaving Shakespeare flailing and already falling, a jet of blood pumping from the stump of his wrist. As Curie and I scrambled to our feet, she simply bowed her head and shrugged, admitting defeat. The shard of obsidian went through her eye and into her brain, killing her instantly. The shaggy grey paws pulled the dead into the bowels of the earth, and for the first time, I was alone, in the vast classroom. The robes loosened their constrictor grip, and I pulled down the muffler with blessed relief, gasping for air. A voice crooned from the darkness. Well done. Black shelves full of books began to rise from the floor. The knowledge in the library is exquisite, and I've barely begun to taste it. There are tomes from so far forward in time that it will take me decades of study even to begin to comprehend them. But I know that's not why I'm here. That was just the cherry on the sundae, or the cheese in the trap. You see, Lucifer didn't just want someone brilliant. The classroom always has been, and always will be, a ruse. Intellect isn't unique, but intellect combined with raw animal cunning? That's really special. Almost as special as human intelligence coupled with true love. And I am special. There is a book, he tells me, that is not in this library. The only book that he doesn't own the book of life and death, which resides in heaven. All I need to do to bring Tess back to life is to wrest that book from its owner and erase her name. Then she will return to me as if she had never been taken. And with the infinite knowledge of the Black Library, I can fix her. But that's enough for now. I have work to do. Bringing down heaven is going to take some planning and I need a new weapon if I'm going to succeed. Fortunately, I'm no longer confined to the Black Library. I can come and go as I please. I can do anything I please. And I do know where to find the perfect blacksmith.
Mel and Molly have always been together. Sisters looking out for each other through whatever life throws at them. It's an unshakably tight-knit existence. But in this tale, shared with us by author Evan Dickin, the sisters discover a place that allows them to deal a little better with the world at large. Performing this tale are Kristen DiMercurio and Lindsay Russo. So let's join these siblings as they head to their special place, a place of power. But as we all know, power can be corrupted, even in the Grove. Molly probably wouldn't have been so bad if not for the Grove. It wasn't like we set out to kill all those folks. Even not having parents to teach us, we knew the difference between right and wrong. Molly just never seemed to care. When we were little, she'd go out of her way to squash the worms that washed onto the road after a hard rain, smearing them all over the pavement. And every summer, she'd go out to collect June bugs in a mason jar, then screw the lid on tight so she could watch them die slow. Still, those were all little things. I don't think it would have gone any further if the grove hadn't made it so easy. It wasn't much to look at, just a ravine full of pine and maple, all overgrown with English ivy, sloping down from the edge of our backyard. The neighborhood had been all woods back in the day, clear-cut and subdivided into residential lots, missing trees memorialized by names like Poplar Avenue and Maplewood Court. Only the grove hung on, surrounded and spiteful. It looked normal from the outside, sure, but you really only had to step inside to know there was something wrong. It's hard to describe. One time in college, Molly and I drove down to West Virginia to catch a reading of one of my favorite authors. Coming from central Ohio, I'd never seen real mountains before. I remember driving up and down, feeling the pressure build inside my head as I changed elevation. Stepping into the grove was kind of like that. Like the trees were all pressing down on you trying to crush you down into nothing. One time, Molly and I built a fort, spent all afternoon piling up logs, stitching branches together with braided twists of ivy. Excited to try out our new hideaway, we ran up the hill to throw together a picnic lunch. Couldn't have been more than ten minutes. By the time we got back, the fort was gone. Not taken down, not wrecked, just gone. Like we'd never built it in the first place. I think that's when Molly realized there was something weird about the grove. Even so, we probably would have left it at that if it hadn't been for Felix. It was a class project. A white and brown speckled rabbit Mrs. Parkins had picked up over at the co-op. We fed him, cleaned his cage, all that stuff. And every weekend, one student would get to take Felix home. We were excited as hell when our turn came. Everything would have gone okay if he hadn't bitten Molly. I know what you're thinking, but it wasn't like that. One second, Molly is just holding Felix. The next, she's screaming, her hand all bloody. Then she just sort of threw him against the wall. It was pure reflex, no malice at all, but I guess it was hard enough to snap the rabbit's neck. What can I say? We panicked. Even having no parents to get on our case, we still had to worry about school. Molly had the idea of throwing Felix's body down in the ravine and telling everyone he'd slipped his cage and run off. It wouldn't be great, 
but it'd be better than saying we'd killed the poor thing. Come Monday, we trudged to class all muddy and downcast. Mrs. Parkins asked why we'd brought an empty cage to school. Nobody remembered. When I finally broke down and spilled the secret, everyone acted like I was making it up. It was like Felix had been squeezed right out of their heads. Mrs. Parkins even got mad at me for talking about blood and broken rabbits. I had to stay in at recess that day. Molly said it served me right for tattling. After that, I was all for counting our blessings. But Molly could never let things go. I think that's when she started killing animals. Dogs and cats mostly, but birds too when she could catch them. I'll never know for sure how many, because she threw them in the grove and only told me about it way later. She could have probably kept on like that forever, no one the wiser. But like I said, Molly could never leave well enough alone. There was this neighbor kid, Dominic. He was two grades ahead of us, but liked to hang down by the playground and pick on the younger kids. Molly said he was mean on account of his dad hitting him, but they lived just down the street. I used to watch them all the time from my window, even though I wasn't supposed to. Dominic's dad was always out with him, playing baseball, throwing pitches, working in the yard. And I never saw him lose his temper, not even when Dom rode his bike through the flower beds. Some people are just mean, I guess. Once, Molly and I were playing army soldiers, and Dominic hid down by the trash bin so he could pelt us with rocks. One of them hit me right in the mouth and split my lip wide open. I wanted to tell a teacher, but Molly got this strange look, like when she was catching June bugs. I honestly thought we were just going to rough Dominic up a little. He was bigger than us, and a boy besides, but I figured if Molly and I could get the drop on him, we could get in some good licks. Anyway, we set up a little tripwire on the edge of the ravine, then went down the block to stick a pen knife in Dominic's bike tires while he was pitching rocks at squirrels. We made sure he saw us do it, though, and he lit right out after us. Molly and I skipped over the wire, but it caught Dominic about shin height, and he went head over heels down into the ravine. He was pretty bloodied up on account of Molly having smashed a bunch of old Coke bottles down there, but nothing was broken. Well, not at first. Dominic started cussing and yelling about all the shit he was going to do to us. We thought for sure he was coming up the hill, but then he just started screaming. Molly and I peeked over the edge, and Dominic was just sort of rolling around on the ground, thrashing in the dead leaves. That's when I saw the ivy had grown up all around him. Like strings on a fallen marionette, it threaded his arms, legs, and hands. Then the roots came bursting out from between his ribs, spreading, drawing him down, down into the rocky soil at the bottom of the ravine. That's when Molly told me what I'd always suspected. How the grove gathered things up and held them tight. I wanted to tell, I really did. But Molly said the police would come, and we'd go to jail forever and never get to see each other again. For weeks after, I was sure that every distant siren, every flash of red, was a cop coming to arrest me. But they never did. Even Dominic's parents went on like they'd never had a son, ignoring the room full of kids' stuff, the size eight shoes, the stack of rotting Lunchables in their refrigerator. Molly helped herself to Dominic's bike and some other stuff so it wouldn't go to waste. One time... When Molly was away getting groceries, I went to talk to Dominic's parents. It wasn't guilt. Well, 
maybe a little. I knew better than to say we'd erased their son. I really just wanted to see if they remembered anything at all. They listened for a solid hour, never speaking, never interrupting, while I walked them through their own house, talking about Dominic and pointing to all the little bits of him that were left behind. The way they held hands, faces all screwed up as they listened, I thought for sure something was going to spark behind their eyes, but it never did. When I was done, Dominic's mom thanked me for the nice story and sent me home with a plate of lemon bars. That's all their son was to them now. A nice story. I thought we'd stop with Dominic, but the way Molly talked about all the good we were going to do sent tingles up the back of my neck. She said we were like Batman or Wonder Woman, getting rid of the bad guys. Still, it was years before we could make good. Mr. Framer flunked us both in sophomore algebra. That wasn't the reason we erased him, though. He'd always had this creepy vibe. And it was weird how the pretty girls always ended up with seats near the front of class. What really sealed it was when Molly said Claire Nussbaum told her Mr. Framer held Lisa Adkins after class one day. Claire said when Lisa came out she was crying, and said Mr. Framer had tried to feel up her leg. So, we figured we'd put together a little test. Mr. Framer had superhero posters all over the room. Iron Man, Hawkeye, the Hulk, all that macho bullshit. So, Molly went up to him after class one day and asked if he wanted to come over and see the new Thor movie. She said our parents would be out for the weekend, and we knew how much Framer liked the Marvel movies. We figured if Framer wasn't a creep, there was no way he'd come. I can still remember the way his bones cracked under tightening roots. He died staring at the moon through the branches, wide-eyed, his mouth hanging open like he was trying to scream. The sound that came out was like the slosh of wet mud under boots. Near as I can figure, it was the blood that got the tree's attention. I mean, Molly and I had skinned knees and elbows plenty of times down in the grove. But not like Dominic or Mr. Framer. Molly and I had made damn sure the bottom of the ravine was sharp enough to cut. Shattered glass, bent nails, flecks of flint and shale, all mingled with rusty springs and ragged bits of metal. The grove didn't disappear any of it. If anything, it seemed to welcome the junk bristling like an old porcupine hidden among the brush. After Framer was gone, we took his keys and car, then sold his house. I thought for sure we'd be caught, but all we had to do was write our names on the deed. People would accept any lie, no matter how wild. You could almost see their minds working, like ocean waves piling sand into a hole on the beach. Everything just sorta filled in. I know what you're thinking, but it wasn't like that. We were heroes, you see. Molly would search online for targets. Rapists, child molesters, murderers who got off on a technicality. We'd track them down, get them drunk or high, then bring them home for the grove. Whether they were guilty or not, it was damning enough evidence they were willing to go home with two underage girls. We kept their stuff, sold their places, emptied their accounts. Some of it we kept, but most went to charity. That was my idea, by the way. After a while, we had enough to cover college. Law for Molly, creative writing for me. It wasn't that I dreamed of writing the great American novel or anything. I just liked the way stories came together. How characters could seem like real people even though they were just words on a page. In a way, it was kind of like the opposite of what Molly and I did. 
One time we erased this slumlord who was trying to evict a bunch of tenants so he could jack up the price and rent the houses to college kids. He fought harder than most, tearing up big fistfuls of ivy even as the roots coiled around his arms. I thought he might rip free, until Molly cracked his head open with a rock. Afterward, we signed the houses over to his tenants. They didn't realize anything had changed, but I bet they'd be grateful if they had. I probably should have paid more attention, but I had classes to worry about, and papers, and tests, and spring vacation in Cancun. Romance, too, although I never could seem to find anyone worth more than a few dates. Molly did all the research. She was my sister. I trusted her. Besides, she was getting ready for law school while I was writing my fourth C-plus retelling of Paradise Lost. If Molly said some tech bro in a Saint Laurent fedora and $2,000 shoes had jacked drug prices and defrauded needy people out of millions, who was I to argue? I think it was when the police showed up at the house that I really started to wonder. We grabbed a guy, it was almost always a guy, Molly said had skipped on a hit-and-run conviction. Something to do with the police messing up the chain of custody or something? It was all by the numbers. Molly picked him up at a bar, then spiked his beer, while I pulled the car around. Who's going to bother two girls helping a drunk shitbag out of a bar? Even if they did, they'd forget all about it once the Grove was through with him. We'd be free and clear, unless someone called the cops right away. Well, this shitbag had a wife and kids. Apparently, this wasn't his first time stepping out, so she'd hired a detective to trail him and gather ammunition for the divorce. Anyway, the detective followed us home just in time to catch a big old eyeful of Molly smashing our date over the head with a tire iron. We'd barely gotten him into the grove when the sirens started up. Molly ran up to the house to handle things, future lawyer, remember? While I rolled the shit bag down into the ravine. I could hear him crashing around down there in the nails and broken glass. Then came the familiar slithery hiss of ivy wrapping around his legs. Cars squealed up outside, lights flashing. I heard our front door bang open, then Molly shouting something about warrants and unlawful searches. Down in the ravine, the roots were just starting to crackle. From experience, I knew it'd be another 30 seconds or so before the grove had him all the way down, more if he struggled, and the shitbag was starting to struggle. Someone yelled at the police to check the woods behind the house. It was about 15 feet down into the ravine. I knew better than to go down while the trees were erasing someone, so I grabbed the heaviest rock I could lift and heaved it down into the pit. I was aiming for the shitbag's head, but the rock hit him in the shoulder. Fortunately, it was heavy enough to break bone, and I guess the shock finally quieted him down. One of the police screamed at me to turn around with my hands up. By the time I did, he had no goddamned idea why he was at my house. The thing is, neither did Molly. See, you gotta be down there to watch the trees erase someone. Otherwise, they're gone for you just like everyone else. I mean, Molly put it together pretty quick. The cops were a big giveaway, but she had no idea who we'd erased. After we'd sent the cops home with waves and cups of coffee, Molly started asking all sorts of questions. Mostly normal stuff like, did I know anything about the guy? Where did we find him? How did we pick him up? But then she started getting really personal, like, had I ever seen him before? I hadn't. Or if I'd been messing around on her computer. 
I had, but mostly to cruise fanfic sites. I didn't really know much, but the way she kept at it just didn't sit right with me. So I checked up on the shitbag. It wasn't hard. I had his wallet, his car, his address, pictures of his family, everything. More? I was the only one who could see all the broken pieces his impending messy divorce would have left behind. The guy was obviously a cheater, but there was no mention of a hit and run anywhere. I honestly couldn't figure out why Molly had wanted to erase him until I cracked his phone password and found pictures of the two of them together. Not gonna lie, that was tough. Not just because I'd trusted Molly, but because I'd convinced myself we were rewriting stuff for a good cause, that the world was better off without these horrible people in it. Granted, cheating on your wife and kids is pretty bad, but was it worth being edited out of existence? The worst part was realizing that if Molly had lied about one shitbag, she'd probably lied about plenty more. I'd never been as smart as my sister, but it didn't take a genius to start piecing things together. Like how I'd never had a long-term relationship, or even a serious friend, or how our house had always seemed bigger on the outside than on the inside, or how we'd never gotten an electric bill or made a mortgage payment. Molly and I had grown up all alone. Two little girls going to school, buying groceries, just sort of skidding across the edges of realization. I couldn't believe no one had ever thought to check up on us. Turns out, we weren't heroes after all. Any other time, Molly would have figured me out in a second. But we were seniors, and she had finals, law school applications, an undergraduate thesis. A creative writing major might not carry the weight of a law degree, but it did mean I could turn in my papers early and spend the last week of the semester thinking about how I could make things right. We were celebrating out on the back porch. Steaks, Dom Perignon, and enough shrimp cocktail to choke a horse. Molly had aced her finals, of course, just gotten her acceptance letter from Moritz. She could have probably gone to Harvard or Columbia, but she wanted to stay close to home, of course. I waited until we were midway through the second bottle before I set my fork down and let my shoulders sag. When did you kill our parents? To her credit, Molly didn't even try to lie. She just looked at me, her eyes sadder than I'd ever seen them. Everything happened pretty quick after that. Molly threw her champagne in my face. While I was still sputtering, she snatched up the bottle and cracked me a good one on the side of the head. In the movies, the bottle always breaks, but this one didn't. So she was able to hit me a few more times before I could get my hands up. Everything went weird after that, like still frames lined up one after another. I felt the brick of the patio against my cheek, heard the scrape of the back gate, Molly's shadow stretched out across the grass as she grabbed my feet and started to drag me across the yard. I tried to kick free, but my legs felt all loose and fuzzy. <clears throat> it didn't have to be this way. <sighs> Molly's eyes glinted silver in the porch light, her cheeks wet with actual tears. All these years, and I don't think I'd ever seen Molly cry. I clawed at the ground, pulling up hunks of wet grass, dirt under my fingernails. There was nothing to hang on to. Nothing before the grove. There was no breeze, but still I heard the trees creak, branches stretching like hungry hands, shivering in anticipation. It didn't matter that I'd fed it well over the years. The grove made no distinctions. Just before the edge, 
Molly's ankle rolled in the grass. She shook her head, blinking. Her grip slackened and I was able to tug my leg free. I gave her a kick just for good measure, and she stumbled on wobbly legs, swiping at me with arms gone feeble and awkward. What did you do to me? Molly went down on one knee, the heel of one hand pressed to her eye, as if to ward off a migraine. It didn't have to be this way. I slowly pushed to my feet, testing each leg before I put weight on it. I had plenty enough time. From experience, I knew the drugs I'd slipped into Molly's champagne would last for hours. Wait, wait. Her voice was slurred, but there was a real panic in it now. Where, where, where's sisters? Where's sisters, Mel? But I was beyond listening. I made myself watch the Grove murder her. Through tear-blurred eyes, I saw the vines thread her fingers, slipping almost tenderly between meat, sinew, and bone. For a moment, the roots lifted my sister up, like a child presenting a participation trophy. All the while, Molly held my gaze, not calling out, not struggling even as the trees began to draw her down into the cold, stony soil. I wanted to say I saw something approaching relief in her eyes, there at the end, but that would be a lie. Now I'm just waiting for the end of summer, the long, dry days when the grass turns brown and the leaves crackle like old paper. Then I'll tip a few cans of gasoline down into the ravine and try to turn the grove into a proper pyre. It's the least I can do for all the people we buried down there. Until then, it's just me. Well, me and this story. That's all Molly is now. I suppose that's all any of us are in the end. The folks we fed to the grove just got there quicker. It's actually kind of comforting to think of us all as just bumbling through life, thinking our story is the one that matters. June bugs bumping against the lid of a mason jar. Meanwhile, the world just shrugs and moves on, erasing us all in turn. You may have met the people Molly and I killed, passed them on the street, gone to class together. You may have even been close, may have even been family. But now, they're nothing more than words on a page. Soon enough, I will be too. In our final tale, we join John, the proprietor of a bar. It's a horror-themed bar, in fact. For most of us, that might sound like great fun, but there's no denying it's a bit cheesy, a bit gimmicky. But in this tale, shared with us by author L.P. Hernandez, beneath the bar's veneer lies another much more shocking establishment. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Jeff Clement, Nicole Goodnight, and Matthew Bradford. So let's kick back, grab a drink, and live our best life. Maybe someone here can make it happen. Maybe we can be invited into the Nightmare Room. 
The man strolled into the nightmare room on a Tuesday evening. By the look of him, he had come directly from the municipal airport, likely flying on a private jet. His rumpled suit was charcoal gray and a bit snug around his midsection. I draped a dish towel over my shoulder as the door swung shut and the shaft of orange sunlight on the floor expired. I squinted through the perpetual haze of cigarette smoke. There were no smokers in the bar at the time. The nightmare room is many things, but well-ventilated is not among them. East Coast, I thought. It was always one of the coasts. The man sucked his teeth, watery green eyes dancing with acute disinterest over the artifacts on the wall. He wore his indifference like an armor, a barrier between him and the less important people he might encounter during the day. He adjusted his tie, mostly for effect, then stepped fully into the room pulling his small, wheeled suitcase behind. I smiled at the juxtaposition of this man in his expensive suit and his surroundings. The nightmare room was the definition of kitsch. Posters adorned nearly every square inch of the walls. Leatherface, victim half-hidden by his considerable bulk, butted up against a gore-splattered advertisement for sleepaway camp. Flat-screen televisions occupied the remaining space, one playing Plan 9 from Outer Space on a loop, and the other cycling through every subgenre of horror imaginable. The Nightmare Room was also a cultural touchstone for our small community in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. It was the place many of the younger residents enjoyed their first sip of alcohol. Some nights the bar was overrun by gaggles of glittery bridesmaids, the bride would be draped in penis-themed plastic accoutrement. Other nights, a couple dozen Harleys sat out front, and the smell of sun-baked leather overpowered the stench of tobacco and spilled beer. The dance floor of alternating black and white tiles was about the size of a standard bedroom, small by most standards. For this town, though, it was perfect. There were only two people in the bar on that day. A husband and wife, munching deep-fried appetizers, their faces caressed by the white glow of their cell phone screens. They were regulars and mistakenly thought it was trivia night. Neither looked up when the man approached the bar, his dismissive scrutiny of the establishment complete. His opinion manifested on his face in the form of a curled upper lip. This is the nightmare Correct. His voice drowned beneath the crunch of industrial rock music. I turned my head so that the man could speak into my ear. This is the nightmare room? I cocked my head, one eyebrow lifted. The man glanced at the fixtures on the wall, the various movies playing on TV screens, as if to reassure himself. Perhaps the stories had not been true. Perhaps he had been sent across the country for nothing. I smiled. I'm fucking with you. Yes, it is. John, 
Owner-operator. What can I get you? I passed a laminated menu across the bar. The man smiled and cleared his throat. <clears throat> I think I'm looking for something off the menu. I nodded. Reference? The man withdrew a slip of paper from the inner pocket of his jacket, folded it in half, and handed it to me. I'll need your identification as well. I read the name on the paper. Hmm. Wouldn't have guessed Gary would have any friends. The man held his driver's license to his chest. Uh, this is anonymous, correct? Anonymous? Yes. But I still need to know who you are. The man shot a quick glance at the couple at the opposite end of the bar. It's just... my reputation. Gary sent you, didn't he? Wouldn't you say he's an important man? Yes, it's just... Aren't you here, based on his recommendation? The man tugged at his collar. We operate by reservation, except for Tuesdays, which are a first-come, first-served basis. My only requirement is a reference from an existing client in good standing. I plucked the driver's license from the man's hand and read the name. Sunir Samuel Carpenter of Samka Integrated Solutions, correct? The man nodded slowly as if he thought he was being set up. Listen, Samuel, you're in the right place. You are early, however. Let me pour you a drink and cook up some food for you. We start at midnight on the nose. No sooner. Don't bother asking. The power dynamic had shifted. Samuel nodded, unable to maintain eye contact with me. Samuel Carpenter, founder and CEO of Samka Integrated Solutions, was a self-made billionaire. He was among the youngest to ever cross that threshold. He retrieved the menu and scurried to the nearest booth. I squinted at him. He seemed to have shrunk by half a foot since he first walked into the bar. He'll order a burger and fries. He'll eat them separately. Samuel removed his coat and glanced about, unsure of what to do with it. His white dress shirt bore half moons of sweat beneath the armpits. He fidgeted with his tie and relieved the top button of his dress shirt, which restored some of the natural color to his face. He folded the coat in half and placed it on his lap. I let him wallow in his discomfort for a few minutes further. He retrieved his cell phone, but soon returned it to his pocket, feigning interest in the movies playing on various screens. What'll you have? Oh. He picked up the menu again. Uh, just a burger and fries... Uh, Diet Coke to drink, please. Sure thing, Sam. 
I retreated to the kitchen to drop a patty on the griddle and toss some fries and oil. Our food is good, but that's not why men like Samuel Carpenter come to the nightmare room. They certainly don't come for trivia night either. There's something different about this place. Something special. Just like the town itself. I peeked my head back in the bar and saw that Sam was now alone. His eyes darted from screen to screen, and he glanced over his shoulder at the door every 15 or so seconds. The couple at the bar left a crumpled $20 bill, which brought my tip to about $1.18, if my quick math was correct. What is the nightmare room? To most, it's a place to grab a cold beer after work. To watch a monster movie marathon. Or to dance on a Friday or Saturday night. To someone like Sam, though, it was a place to become someone else. And not in a way a recently divorced dad on the dance floor might after a few shots of Jack. I wondered what someone like Sam wanted to be. I had my suspicions. He was not the first 30-something self-made billionaire to sit in that very booth. I flipped the patty and dropped a slice of American cheese on it. He had not specified which type of cheese he wanted, but I knew. I wiped my hands on the dish towel, slung it over my shoulder, and returned to the bar. Sam smiled as I approached with his Diet Coke in hand. So, what kind of experience do you want tonight? I took a seat across from him. He sat a little taller, glancing over his shoulder again. Oh, I don't really know. What were you told? <clears throat> he cleared his throat and leaned a few inches closer. That you could do anything here. Literally anything and no consequences i nodded it's true you can did gary tell you how it works i'm not sure he understood it himself he did tell me about his experience though oh yes gary had fun he's been back three times if memory serves i Enjoy watching his scenarios. Sam frowned. You watch? I have to. Liability. Just because nothing has ever gone wrong doesn't mean nothing ever will. Would not be a good look for me to have a billionaire tie in my place. He reclined and heavy metal blaring at a reasonable volume occupied the space between us. Have to watch? I held my hands up. <sighs> I've seen everything, Sam. You name it. There's nothing you could ask for that would surprise me. No recordings, no video, just me. My lips are sealed. That's a good portion of what you're paying for. I slid out of the booth. Be back in a second with your food. He nodded, but his eyes were fixed at some point in the distance. 
So, how does it work? A strand of melted cheese was plastered to his chin. They always ask that question, and I have yet to develop a sufficient response. It's second nature to me. As effortless a process as digesting my food. I don't think about it. It just... happens. Well, Sam... I can tell you that I don't think it would work anywhere other than here. A lot happens here that shouldn't. I said, prompting him to ask a question that would divert the conversation. Oh yeah? Like what? His fries were untouched, ushered to the opposite side of the plate from his burger. I could tell you stories, but you're not paying me for that. A couple of things come to mind, however. Every May 23rd, it rains from the ground up. It only lasts a minute or so, but it happens without fail. Last week, I stepped into the walk-in freezer to grab some pizza dough and walked out of the freezer into a candy store three blocks away. Startled a man stealing candy straws by stuffing them into his underwear. He nodded, cheeks fat with meat. Hmm. Any reason you can think of? I grew up here, so it's a pretty normal existence for me. By saying that, I mean, I don't really think about it that often. It's just the way things are, and always have been. But I think reality is thin here. Like, when you were a kid and you slid your jeans in the grass so much that the fabric wears. Maybe it's human suffering that has worn the fabric of reality. I don't know. The monster smacked the base of the bottle of ketchup, painting his fries in the stuff. He didn't have the decency to dip. There were no other customers that evening. A woman walked inside, scoffed at the decor, and about faced out of the building. I closed out the cash register, which did not include the $50,000 Sam paid me for his experience, and washed the few dishes that remained. By 11 o'clock, I was killing time, restocking items at random. At 11.30, I rejoined Sam in his booth, So, regarding the experience, I have some standard options for first-timers. Sam's face was flush, and he licked his lips in increasingly brief intervals. Like what? I think a horror movie scenario is a good introduction. It's a familiar setting, but still gives you that adrenaline rush. His eyes darted to plan nine, and he frowned. No one ever chooses that one. I'm just anxious to get started. I have some ideas, but I'll let you guide me. Can I be the bad guy, though? <laughs> no one ever chooses to be the victim, Sam. That would end the scenario too quickly. 
Which bad guy did you have in mind? His eyes darted from the screens to the posters. Him. He nodded toward Leatherface. Texas Chainsaw was a popular request, though as an experience, it was a bit lackluster. Fans of the movie know the violence was mostly implied. Clients always had the option to go off script, however, which has led to some very entertaining alternate scenes. Sure thing, Sam. At about five minutes before midnight, I escorted Sam into the bowels of the building. The door to the experience room was nondescript, a mirror of the supply closet door on the opposite side of the hallway. The sensation flowed through me, like warm bathwater filling my insides. I opened the door. Do I have to get changed? No, Sam. Everything is provided. Give me a second. I closed my eyes and sucked in air until my lungs ached. The particles floating in the atmosphere coalesced as I imagined the world we would enter. The walls of the room dissipated, and the warmth inside of me spiked momentarily, then cooled until it matched my body temperature. Light dazzled our eyes as the sizzling Texas sun roasted our necks. Sam's tailored suit was gone, replaced by a blood-splattered apron over a short-sleeved button shirt. It was an improvement in my eyes, as the suit made him seem like a child playing businessman. He hefted the chainsaw up with a grunt of effort and inspected it. I doubt he had ever seen one outside of the movies. Amazing. I stood at the entrance to the room. This is your reality now, Sam. You can walk into these hills for forever if you want. It's up to you. The walls are gone. You can kill indiscriminately. You can go take a shit in the woods. You can make some fries and dump ketchup on them like a barbarian. The scenario starts in two minutes. You can act it out, or you can explore. Think of it as an open-world video game. Nothing that happens to you is permanent, but don't be a moron and cut your own head off or something. Sam stepped forward, the inertia of the chainsaw propelling him a few additional feet. I retreated and closed the door, which disappeared in his world, and stepped a few paces away to my booth. I sat on the plastic lawn chair, the brittle legs flexing beneath my weight. I can afford better, but had once fallen asleep in a more comfortable chair during a client's experience, and the entire apparatus depends on my mind. That client, a fading pop star with a suppressed sexual orientation, was trapped in an orgy, imbued with the evolving textures of my nightmare. For three hours... He was chased, 
by a college wrestling team. His request. With cannon-sized carnivorous penises. My nightmare. I watch Sam from four different perspectives on four screens. These are also powered by my mind, though I can't explain how. I think of it as a projection of my imagination. Instead of seeing something with my mind's eye, it plays on the screens. You bitch. I whispered as the asshole knocked before he went into the infamous Texas Chainsaw House. I've been able to manipulate reality for as long as I can remember. Like many other children, I once had an imaginary friend. Only, my friend was not imaginary. I willed him into existence. At the age of three, my favorite book was Where the Wild Things Are. When my mother discovered me in the bathtub soaping up a monster the size of a small buffalo, she fainted almost instantly. Over the years, I evolved my talent and devised a way to monetize it. I have an idea of how it works, but no manner in which to test the theory. Matter, in its most minute fragments, is essentially the same. A tree and the soil from which it grows are comprised of the same particles, just arranged differently. Reality, then, is like a massive puzzle. Rearrange the pieces, and you get a different picture. I rearrange reality. I was born knowing how to do it. Try explaining walking as if your audience was unaware of it. Easy. One foot in front of the other, right? Well, how does that one foot get off the ground? Which muscles do you activate, and in which order? How do you disperse the weight across the foot evenly? Sculpting reality is as easy as walking to me. I just can't explain it very well. Sam strolled through the house as if he was in a museum. I mentally projected an extra couple of pounds of weight onto the chainsaw and he eventually left it on the floor. I switched the display on one of the four screens so that it now showed Sam's vitals as well as a three-dimensional image of his brain. There was a knock at the door, and his amygdala flared while his heart rate accelerated. I paused the entire scenario except for Sam, projecting my voice into his reality. Sam? He looked up at the ceiling. Are you familiar with the movie? I can guide you through each scene, or you can do your own thing. I restarted the scenario and the knock sounded again. Sam retrieved his unnaturally heavy chainsaw and pulled the cord. It sputtered to life noisily and issued a puff of smoke. I thought so. He stomped toward the front door. His first attempt at a kill was a miniature catastrophe. The chainsaw missed its target and bored into the woman's arm just below the shoulder. Blood and flecks of bone exploded from the wound as she screamed and fled, slowly, so that he could catch her. 
Sam tripped in his pursuit, and the chainsaw plunged into the earth. He farted audibly as he regained his footing. I stopped the blonde with the ragged arm while he collected himself, but his attention was drawn to another target. The young man in the wheelchair begged for mercy as Sam descended upon him. I conjured it for him, but imbued it with the slightest scent of shit, which he did not seem to notice. No, please! The man in the wheelchair shielded his face with his hands. Now I am become death. I groaned in the booth. Sam revved the chainsaw and buried it into the man's stomach. Blood and viscera splattered Sam's apron as his victim squealed and writhed. A vermilion river flowed from the dying man's mouth. The chainsaw's engine stopped. The cutting chain was clogged with organ meat and chunks of rib. The victim returned from the brink of death to make awkward eye contact with his killer. Um. Sam squeezed the throttle again, then looked up. Little help? God damn it. I cleared the gore from the chain. One hour and 55 minutes later, Sam's universe evaporated, and he stood in a featureless room, out of breath, but otherwise unchanged from when he first stepped foot inside. I turned off the monitors, left the booth, and opened the door for him. His eyes were as wide and bright as symbols. I want to do it again. Well, I'll check the schedule, but I believe the next availability for regulars is a month from now. We stepped into the hallway. I'll pay double. I'll pay triple. I shook my head. Doesn't work that way, Sam. I have to be fair to my other clients. Some are wealthier than you, by the way. Fine, fine. But what else can I do? Well, now that you're a regular, so to speak, we can expand our options. I can create a world with you using your mind. If there is something you want to experience that I am not familiar with, we can build it together. We can make you the most popular kid in your high school. You can score the winning touchdown for your football team. We stepped into the main body of the nightmare room. He finally asked the question that had been burning the tip of his tongue. Can I have sex? Yes. With anyone you could legally have sex with in real life as my only stipulation. (sighs) Amazing. 
He traced his bloated fingers over his face, searching for dried blood which was not there. Oh, uh, one more thing. He went to retrieve his luggage. Can I have a to-go cup for my Diet Coke? That motherfucker. Over the next few months, Sam became my most persistent client. Not my best client. Just relentless. He booked every opening I allowed, and somehow always knew when another client canceled. On more than one occasion, the wire transfer I received from him was my first indication that the scheduled client would not make it. He alternated between murdering and fucking, and once had himself elected president, with Carmen Electra, of all people, as his first lady. Samka Integrated Solutions stock soared as its founder distracted himself with his various alternate guises within the nightmare room. When he wasn't in the room, he was thinking about it. The stock was up by 20%, which inflated his bank account by another billion or so dollars. I should not have been surprised when the check arrived along with his demand. John. I have a special request for my next experience. I know you have previously dismissed this entreaty from me, but I ask again in the hope that you will allow me to find closure for a painful part of my childhood. My younger sister passed away when I was 13. She was a couple of weeks shy of her ninth birthday, and she was also my best friend. The manner of her passing is a mystery to our family. No satisfactory investigation took place as her wounds were consistent with a fall down the stairs. I would like a visit with her again. For this scenario, however, I respectfully request privacy. If you are willing to not watch just this once, the money is yours. Your faithful client, Sam. The check was for $500 million. A big deal until you consider it was less than half of what he made doing nothing. I agreed to his condition, and it was not the money that made me do so. I was rich by any standard and had no real use for the additional funds. The reason I accepted the condition was because he unintentionally left a loophole and I was curious. Sam arrived at two in the afternoon and was apparently emulating, in dress, his appearance from the era of his childhood he wished to revisit. The Ren and Stimpy t-shirt was two sizes too small for him, and his belly was intermittently visible if he lifted his arm above waist high. He took a seat in a remote, dark corner of the bar and ordered as usual. When I checked on him an hour later, the cheeseburger and fries were untouched. The fries were betrayed in typical fashion, however, growing soggy beneath narrow bands of ketchup. His mood did not match the tenor of his letter. He was not somber or sullen. He vibrated with excitement. It was karaoke night, 
and Sam's agitation at having to share the space with so many people grew by the minute. He paced the room with his hands behind his back, often pausing by the bar to flash his wristwatch at me. It's fine. I mouthed. He marched away with that robotic, ineloquent walk of his. The night's third rendition of Africa by Toto, this time sung by three young ladies at once, washed over him with no effect. He didn't even nod his head. Sam found his booth, retreated within it, and gulped from his fourth Diet Coke of the night. The nightmare room cleared by eleven, and Sam followed like a forlorn specter as I closed the bar. Hovering so near, I felt his breath on the back of my neck. None of my employees stay past eight. I need a buffer between the business as most understand it and the true nightmare room, which exists from midnight until two in the morning. I cut the power to the stereo system, the final crunching guitar riff portending silence that pressed upon my ears. Jesus. I had been unaware that Sam stood directly behind me as I closed out the cash register. His pink tongue darted lizard-like between his lips. Is it time? You've been showing me your watch every goddamn half hour. You tell me. He retreated, hands raised in submission. Uh, I'm sorry. It's just that this means a lot. Yeah. The check was a good indication. You know I can't just deposit that thing, right? Midnight, as always. Sam rubbed his hands together as if he was washing them beneath a stream of water. This will be like the football game scenario. I'll act as a conduit, but you will be primarily responsible for creating the world. And you won't see anything. He leaned forward, his breath sweet with the scent of cola. No. And it's not because of the money. If you have a true need for privacy, I will respect that. I will not watch. Just this once. He nodded and faced the door. Ready. The process was fairly simple. Sam conjured memories of the house and the family members he wished to encounter. In this instance, only his sister. I plucked these memories out of the ether and created the temporary reality, which we refined as he made minor corrections to the placement of a bush or the color of paint on the front door. Connected by an invisible umbilical cord, he used me to make the changes himself. A minute later, Sam was inside his childhood bedroom, and I closed the door behind me. I sat in the hard plastic chair again. The monitors were off, except for the one which displayed Sam's vitals. Emily? I sat a little taller in the seat. I had agreed not to watch the scenario. There was no mention of listening to it. I felt him tugging at my power as he fabricated his environment, 
but I resisted the temptation to access his mind. Instead, I turned my attention to the monitor. Emily, it's Sam. He said he just wanted to have a conversation with her. To do something simple in her company, like watch her favorite movie, which was Ferngully. In my room, Sam. His heart rate nearly doubled. His heavy footfalls plodded over noisy floorboards. Sam, you know you're not allowed in my room when Mom and Dad aren't here. I watched the three-dimensional image of his brain. Lights flashing as his anticipation built. It can be our secret. A door closed behind him. I was true to my word. I did not watch Sam's experience, but there was no need. I heard everything. I heard the screams stifled behind a clamped hand, the grunts of force and laughter, and the eventual sobbing. I watched the brain, bits of light flashing here and there as neurons fired. The patterns might have seemed random, but they were not. I could have forgiven him for the imagined incest. I could have forgiven him for the dreamed-up murder. A well-liked governor from a northeastern state requested a similar experience a few months prior, but it was his own wife he killed. Better for him to exercise the urge in that fabricated reality than in real life. Obviously, Sam was not interested in closure. He was not interested in having one last meaningful interaction with his little sister. In addition, he... He was not experiencing something... New. Neurons flared, red and blue sparks drawn from deep within his memory. He had done this before. This was a reenactment. I loved you, Emily. I wish you could have understood how much I loved you. The alarm sounded and his world dissolved. Emily's blood vanished from his Renan Stimpy shirt. I opened the door to find him standing with his hands on his hips, a jack-o'-lantern smile splitting his face. Ah, oh, thank you. That was just what I needed. I did not hear from Sam for two months. I knew he would come back. Men like Sam always come back. Hey, John. Sorry I missed you. I know you said last time was a one-time thing, 
but it was very beneficial for my spirit. I'd like to make you the same offer as before. Let's use our previously negotiated price as a starting point. Let me know. I can be there in four hours from the moment you say okay. Lucky for Sam, I had an opening. He looked terrible. As if he hadn't slept since the last time I saw him. Wisps of a beard that would never fill in twitched as he spoke. The bags beneath his eyes were like plums, smooth and shiny. He licked at the crusted remnants of his last meal in the corners of his mouth. He wore the same shirt as before, yellowed at the pits and brown around the collar. He'd been wearing that shirt a lot, it seemed. Same as last time, right? He did not make eye contact. Of course, Sam. I'm so glad you were able to find some closure. My power connected to his mind, and the walls of the room shimmered for an instant before melting away. Before I even closed the door, he was calling her name. Emily? Emily, it's Sam. I sat in the booth, arms crossed and eyes closed. The monitors were dormant as I assured Sam they would be. I recalled the creative authority from Sam but maintained the environment. I saw Emily on her bed, hidden beneath a collection of stuffed animals. Sam took a step forward and closed the bedroom door behind him. You fucking bitch. I'm telling mom. <laughs> no, you won't. You'll be dead. But not before I play a little bit. You're the reason they hate me, you know. You can't keep a fucking secret, you stupid whore. Sam unbuttoned his jeans and attempted to step forward. His feet sprouted roots. He fought against them, gripping behind the knee and tugging with all of his strength. What is this? He looked behind him, as if he expected to see me there. John, can you hear me? Something's wrong. I can't control it anymore. Emily jumped off the bed and stepped forward. The walls of the room withdrew, and for a moment, it was only the two of them. Yes, Sam, I can hear you. I said through Emily. Empty black surrounded them, a void as wide and infinite as the space between galaxies. Galaxies. 
What are you doing? I paid you. You're afraid of a lot of things, Sam. A lot. You have enough fears to last a lifetime. Emily stood before her brother, who shook his head, tears vibrating in his eyes. Like your fear of holes. She nodded at Sam's hands. He screamed. The palms of his hands looked like a honeycomb. Hidden in the crimson wetness were trembling worms. The itch was maddening. He bored his finger into one of the holes, but the worm evaded his touch. Sam withdrew his finger, the wet sucking sound. Or your fear of being humiliated. Together, they stood at the 50-yard line of a high school football field. The bleachers stretched skyward with laughing, leering faces. Sam attempted to shield his naked body from their gaze, but there was too much skin and not enough hands to cover it. Or your fear of being alone. Sam floated in an unbounded abyss. An insignificant stripe of peach on a backdrop of limitless black. He opened his mouth to scream, but there was no air. Nothing to convey the sound waves. I had developed an expansion to my power over the past few months. One unfortunate mouse and Samuel Carpenter were my test subjects. I never saw the mouse again and assumed the same would be true for Mr. Carpenter. I imagined a pair of scissors hovering above my connection to him. The scissors severed the link, and Sam drifted away like a balloon into an endless sky. I opened the door to the experience room and saw that it was empty. Good luck out there. I closed the door. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski. Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. 
Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.